Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Chalinor, and I'm joined on today's programme by Paul Regan. Paul is a director and teacher at the Insight School of Art in London. Paul, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you ever so much, Paul, for taking the time to come on to the programme and speak with me. Now, the purpose of this podcast, as I say, is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. Uh, I think that, so the, word, the word leader to me sort of comes in and out of my career. I don't see myself as um, maybe someone who was looking to go into leadership. Um, but I think um, leader has leaders very much sort of come into things at the moment. I think leader, the, the role of a leader comes into things when things aren't quite going right, that um, maybe things aren't following the sort of the business plan that was expected. Mm. Um, and I think um, I think as a leader, um, what's what I've noticed, you know, at times of trouble, it's you're sort of steering the business, you're looking after the sort of the vision. Of the of the the business, you're making changes. You're looking after the brand. You're keeping an eye on finances, and uh, of course, you're dealing with people. So staff are very very important. Making sure that they're on board, making sure they know what's happening. Of course, there's a lot of changes going on at the moment, and so keeping them informed about what your thinking is and sort of sharing ideas and getting feedback. And then, of course, very very important, particularly for our for our school, and um, we have. Usually, before coronavirus, we have sort of 400 students in the studio every week. And it's about sort of looking after their needs, making sure they're okay, and making sure they're enjoying their learning, and they're, they're looked after. So I think, uh, yeah, I think in the role that I do as a, as a leader, it's very much about steering. Um, and yeah, and just to reiterate, I think in times of trouble, the, the word leader is, you know, comes out more. Mm. Leadership is certainly required when things are going um in a difficult vein, I suppose, um, aren't they? Especially at the moment, leadership is really needed to try and direct businesses and organisations and, of course, the country through this current COVID crisis. But leadership is mm. also needed to a degree when things are going quite well as well. Leaders have to be proactive and have plans in place to make sure that when, you know, troubled times are around the corner, that they're prepared, don't they? Yeah, I think I think naturally I'm I'm someone who likes um, I like challenge, I like challenges and problem solving, and I'm I'm very much an ideas person. So I think that's something that I've done without really maybe always sort of planning. I'm always dropping down ideas of how we can provide a better education for people, how we can provide a broader education, um, how we can offer different skills, um, and then so those uh, you know, so even yeah so in good times when things are are working well. Um, I think I'm naturally somebody who gets bored fairly easy. So, you know, where we do one thing very well one term, then I'm always thinking about the next term, like how we can sort of ramp it up and offer something more exciting and offer more variety. Um, so that's, um, I think that's more my natural tendency. And I think sometimes that sort of almost falls into the category of managing. I think mm-hmm. I'm an ideas person and then managing. Um, at the moment, I feel I'm having to be a leader and, um, and, uh, you know, and that's a, a different a different hat that's at the moment. You know, coming up with strategies to sort of get through things and to survive and make sure that we're 
still providing education as best we can. Um, and like I say, you know, keeping staff and, uh, and students on board. And how have you found it adapting to the present situation? Have you found that you've had to fundamentally change your leadership style, especially when it comes to maintaining communication with those around you, staff members and students alike? Because that's also an important part of leadership, isn't it? Communication. Yeah, I've, I've been. I think I've, I've been very lucky. I, I think one. I just sort of going off point slightly. I, I think one of the the important things about being that I feel about being a leader is, is employing the right staff, and I've always been very very careful mm. to try and employ the best. And um, I've always been very aware that if you don't employ the best at the start, it can cause difficulties down the line. And fortunately, um, I'd say nearly all of my staff have been with me for a long time now, and particularly the, the older staff who've been with me for you know a decade or more. And in a way, we had a system that just sort of organically developed through sort of... Um, thinking of new ideas and, and provision, and they knew what their roles were. They're very self-motivated to teach well. They're all very, um, they're all, um, you know, believe in, in providing a, a very good education, and solid education. So it's always, always sort of gone along nicely and organically. Um, and so my leadership there was just nurturing things and, and you know, just steering and just caring. Um, and then now I, I'm very aware that, Everyone went into sort of big shock, including, I think, myself for a couple of weeks of like, how are we going to do this? And then I realized it was my role to, to work out a plan and have a, have a strategy and a structure, which is, as most people have done, you know, going online um, and work out how we can do the variety of different things we do online because it's not just one specific thing that we do. Um, and then to sort of nurture the, the staff and to sort of come on board and not to be afraid of going online and not to be afraid of the technology and show them the system. And I think, you know, each member of staff has required a slightly different approach because they all have sort of different needs and different skills. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so what was, um, what was a sort of a nice organic leadership, um, I feel now I'm very much having to sort of um, be much more proactive, much more in touch with everybody um, much more sort of sort of checking in um, and just um, yeah so I think yeah I think very much um, more proactive now as you say there when it comes to people management that side of leadership you have to be adaptable as a leader because no one approach is necessarily going to work for every single individual I also think it's true that some of the most influential leaders out there can be people who are mentors and people who are teachers such as yourselves. And quite often in this country, I think when we think of leadership as in general, we're tempted to think of people who are in the public eye, aren't we? So people such as politicians at this point in time in particular, celebrities, sports personalities, those sorts of people. And I think recognition sometimes for teachers and mentors, for example, can often sort of fall by the wayside a little bit it would you find yourself agreeing with that do you think that teachers mentors are really recognized as it should be for their importance to leadership in this country well i, I think i think there is a sort of the, you know the stand up on the podium leadership um you know when you're getting a, a big so you know big point across and you're um and you're sharing and inspiring that way um, I think a lot of the teachers i know and probably i fall into the same category maybe we are a bit more sort of discreet at um, at how we get things, you know, maybe mm. we um, don't feel so comfortable being on a podium in a lecture hall or 
something like that. But we do prefer prefer that sort of individual mentoring and small group mentoring and nurturing, um, and to do it, um, yeah, to do it in maybe a more quiet way. I think teachers. Um, you know, I used to be a school teacher. My wife's a, still a school teacher, and I, I know plenty of teachers. And I think they they really just uh, even at the moment, so getting their head down, just making sure that all the people they're responsible for are okay and emotionally okay and they're learning, that they feel they're getting enough opportunity to learn. And, uh, yeah, it is done quite discreetly. And I think that's going right back to the start of our chat. I think when I sort of said I don't always see myself as a leader, I think that's because I think we do have the picture of a leader who's sort of standing out and talking to, to, um, you know, talking to a big group of people. Um, and so maybe it's a slightly different sort of leadership, which is, like you say, maybe a bit more on the mentoring side or the... Um, mentoring nurturing side exactly because leadership i think has many different faces and just out of interest uh, paul um when we think about leaders and people who inspire and mentor others are there any examples of people out there who you've maybe looked up to either that you've worked with or perhaps just encountered uh, read the works of throughout your career yeah um yeah there's I don't think I don't think I've ever been sort of looking out for leaders as such and sort of and sort of um so I mean I did have a little you know, when I knew that we were gonna have this chat I was sort of thinking and one of the questions I sort of had was sort of, you know, sort of so where where did this sort of leader thing come from? And I could pick out when I was at sixth form and uh, I remember having an argument with the with the head of sixth form who told me I couldn't do the A levels because I didn't do well enough in my O levels. I did very mm. badly in my O levels. And uh, I remember her sort of almost throwing this in the day before computers and throwing this sort of big timetable of, um, of data at me and said, well, you see if you can work out how to do your O-levels and your A-levels at the same time. And then I went back at the end of lunch and said, look, I've worked it out and I've organized it for teachers and this is my timetable. Um, and I can remember, I can remember um, uh, at university when those people were sort of voting for a course rep and they sort of, sort of said, oh, Paul, you know, Paul should be the course rep. And I hadn't even dawned on me that, that this was anything that... Uh, a skill that I had, and that was sort of part maybe a bit, but I became the course rep. And then it's only sort of in the future when you sort of meet, um, uh, I, I remember having a very inspiring, um, um, when I was a trainee teacher, um, the person in charge of the department in the school, I was in, and the school was, was a very, very difficult school to be in. Um, but I had this amazing head of department who sort of, even though he was, you know, he was head of, head of the art department, he was a classroom teacher, but, you know, all of his sort of skills were sort of, you know, being organized, being very consistent with the children, being very motivating, but caring as well, fair and honest, and all those sort of character- characteristics. And I think that's probably actually, you know, things within the school have sort of inspired me that way as well. Um, and then we went to, my, my wife and I, we went to um, teaching Kenya for a couple of years. And that's about um, over 20 years ago now. And um, I remember going there, and that was the first time I, I was sort of, socializing with people who are in business because there are a lot of business people there who were sort of connected um, uh, to the school and, you know, we sort of socialized with. And um, coming from the background I came from, uh, business wasn't really, and leadership certainly wasn't something really that was introduced to me and um, I didn't really have an understanding of. And I remember coming back from Kenya thinking, ah, I could, so I, could, I can do education, but I don't necessarily need to be in schools. I can actually set up my own school and then, then sort of promote um, the the belief, the art education. I believe is the art education that people should have adults and children. We teach adults and children, and I remember that being a very influential part. So 
so you know they, the, the people you know the business people we came across in Kenya were, were very inspiring um, in that way as well so there are little pockets of people I've met along the way and little things that have happened that maybe um, sort of led me to where where I went you know to start my dance school 20 years ago and um, and for it to grow to where it's grown to today. Mm, it's really interesting uh, that Paul because it just goes to show doesn't it that leader people can become leaders by chance in a way it's not something that necessarily is just something that you're born with I mean essentially it can just yeah. kind of fall into place for you as you sort of develop through your career. Yeah I think that the word organic that I used earlier is very it's very um, it sounds a bit wishy-washy but it's very true I mean I, I didn't have the the vocabulary of what a leader was, or or business, what a business owner or startup business what business was, it just became from being you know, having my eyes open and knowing that I wasn't quite in the the path that I wanted to be, and I wanted to um, develop my own ideas. I wanted to put my own ideas into practice and make things happen and problem solve all those things I know about myself now that I didn't know necessarily there. And that's, I think, led myself to finding finding where I wanted to be, which was starting up a business and maintaining a business and nurturing that business, which I would have never have known as a 20-year-old. And if we think now about the uh, the future, Paul, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, what do you envision for yourself and for Insight School of Art over the next year or so as we move through this uh, COVID-19 pandemic? And also, what do you see for beyond that as well and your ambitions for then? Yeah, and um, seeing seeing beyond that, um, I'll have a little think about that. <laughs> um, I think during, I think during the next the next year, what's happened so far is um, uh, we've quite successfully put um, lessons into email form with videos and video tutorials that we're doing. And so we've learned how to sort of use film equipment, we've got some microphones and lighting and things like that. Um, we're using from week seven, which is a couple of weeks' time, which is half term. Um, we're, we're taking everything onto Zoom, which we've been using with our artists every week already, which we, we, we mentor artists as well. But we're going to have all our classes going on Zoom. And that um, that goes from um, just general meeting teachers and discussing work and seeing demonstrations to having portrait drawing classes with models um, you know, on Zoom as well. So that, that's, that's been, I think that's become the, the new foundation for where we go forward. I do actually think that even going back into the studio, when this is all over, hopefully it will be all over, and um, you know people will be social distancing to start with, I think we can actually combine lessons. So we have half a class at home on Zoom and we have half a class in the studio, and then that might be something going on into the future that we never sort of drop the online side and actually just becomes a, um, a sort of, once again, an organic part of, of where we go. Because I think... You know, people have um, the, the general public. I've noticed have just welcomed Zoom so well that people who I, I don't think I would have thought I could teach on Zoom, um, and now they've adapted it. They're 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 accepting it, and so it's going to become a part of everyday life now. I think. It's certainly been a real learning curve for institutions, organisations, businesses alike, and it's going to be incredibly interesting over the next few months just to see how the way that we work does change as a result of this pandemic. And even though, Paul, we are just about out of time on today's programme, I actually think it would be fantastic in the next year, once we start seeing these changes really borne out, to perhaps have you back on the programme to see just how things have altered and maybe catch up as well on how the school is getting on as well. Um, For now, though... That'd be an absolute pleasure. 
pleasure. I, I think so too, Paul. And um, yeah. I have to say, it's been a really insightful experience um, having you on uh, today's programme with us. It would be wonderful to have you uh, back on again. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on today and speak with me. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, Paul. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well. You too. Thank you. That was Paul Regan, director and teacher at Insight School of Art. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is currently the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. As a former England player, Strauss is only one of three England captains to win the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He is also the England captain with the second highest amount of test victories in history. I hope you enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, 
it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, and just in terms of... Because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly 
It was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well in done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, 
being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you, mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in twenty fifteen, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach. Was was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holy Soul in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on the sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become 
avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, 
Uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re uh, wearing red. So what what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> like, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do it. Well this. surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.